This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the last portion of Chapter 5 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. In this podcast, I'll be covering the last three sections of Chapter 5. That is Section 5.7 on Tensor Derivatives and Christoffel Symbols, which begins on page 148 of the text. Section 5.8 on Covariant Differentiation, which begins on page 153 and section 5.9 on vectors and one-forms, which begins on page 156. Section 5.7 begins by pointing out that there are a lot of applications in physics and engineering and other sciences in which you might want to know how a vector field changes over space. That is, you might want to take derivatives of those vectors, and that's very straightforward if you're operating in Cartesian coordinates. Because when you express a vector as a series of components times basis vectors, when you take the derivative of that vector, if it's expanded in that way and the basis vectors are the Cartesian basis vectors, they don't change as you move around the space, so you only have to take the derivatives of the components and you don't have to worry about changes in the basis vectors. Of course, that may not be true if you're in non-Cartesian coordinates. The example discussed here in the first paragraph of section 5.7 deals with spherical polar coordinates, where the basis vectors are r hat, theta hat, and phi hat. You know that those point in different directions as you move around the space. Therefore, when you're taking derivatives of vectors that are expanded using these basis vectors, you're going to find that you need to account for the change in the basis vectors as well as the change in the components. This is shown on the bottom portion of page 148, in which the vector a is expanded using the contravariant components a superscript 1, a superscript 2, and a superscript 3, and the covariant basis vectors e sub 1, e sub 2, and e sub 3. When you take the partial derivative of vector a with respect to the first coordinate dimension, x superscript 1, you get the expression shown on the first line of that partial derivative equation on the bottom of page 148, which I've written in a little simpler way using the summation convention and index notation. And if you look at the last equation on this page, you'll see it breaks down into the partial of a superscript i with respect to x superscript 1 times the covariant basis vector e sub 1 plus the contravariant component a superscript i times the partial derivative of of the covariant basis vector e sub i with respect to x superscript 1. And it's that second term, the change in the basis vector over space, that makes Christoffel symbols so very helpful. It says at the very bottom of this page that you get similar expressions if you take the partial derivative with respect to other coordinates. And when you take account of not only the change in the components, but also the change in the basis vectors, then you're doing an operation, the result of which retains the most important characteristics of tensors, which is how they transform between coordinate systems. Well, that type of derivative is called the covariant derivative, and that's discussed in the next section. But those covariant derivatives are going to make a whole lot more sense to you if you understand Christoffel symbols before you dive into those. So, to understand Christoffel symbols, first of all, think of this. If you take the derivative of a basis vector, you're going to get another vector, that is, a quantity with magnitude and direction. And since vectors can be described as weighted linear combinations of basis vectors, that should be true when you take the derivative of a basis vector. So, as it says in the middle of page 149, each Christoffel symbol, which is written using the Greek uppercase gamma, represents the weighting coefficient for one of the basis vectors. The definition is given in equation 5.22 on page 149, where you see gamma. Don't worry about the indices for now. There's a K and an I and a J index. That entire gamma term is the Christoffel symbol. 
And this relationship says that that Christoffel symbol times the E sub K covariant basis vector is equal to the partial of the covariant basis vector E sub I with respect to the X superscript J coordinate. In other words, equation 522 relates the Christoffel symbols to the partial derivatives of the basis vectors. Now, what do those i, j, k indices mean? Well, as it says right after equation 522, the i tells you of which basis vector you're taking the derivative. You can see that by looking at the right side of equation 522. So the first subscript after a Christoffel symbol tells you which basis vector you're differentiating. The j, that is the second subscript of the Christoffel symbol, tells you with respect to which coordinate the derivative is being taken. That is, which coordinate are you changing to induce a change in that ith basis vector. And finally, the k-index tells you in which direction this component of the partial derivative points. You can see that by looking at the left side of equation 522. This is the component that goes in front of the e sub k basis vector. I think understanding these indices is the key to understanding Christoffel symbols. So I've put this figure, it's not really much of a figure, it's more like annotated symbol, at the bottom of page 149. I called it figure 5.1. And there you see that the gamma, the uppercase Greek gamma, is the Christoffel symbol telling you the magnitude of the component of the vector derivative of one of the basis vectors. If you read around these going counterclockwise from the upper left, you'll see that the second block indicates that the i tells you which basis vector's change is being considered, the j tells you which coordinate is being varied to induce a change in the basis vector, and finally, wrapping back around to the upper right, you see that the k index tells you which basis vector points in the same direction as this component of the derivative. There is a footnote on this page saying that these Christoffel symbols are called Christoffel symbols of the second kind, and general relativity books will tell you about another kind of Christoffel symbols called, logically enough, the Christoffel symbols of the first kind. You won't be needing those for what we're going to do with these Christoffel symbols in this chapter. Okay, so that's what the indices all mean. It's probably a lot easier to understand this if you see an example. So on the top of page 150, I've written out an example. First of all, look in the text after the sentence. Hence, if you find two Christoffel symbols, gamma superscript r subscript r theta is 0, and gamma superscript theta subscript r theta is 1 over r. I've written that in a way that I think will help you understand where those components go. It says the partial derivative of e sub r with respect to theta is 0. That's because of that first Christoffel symbol written above e sub r plus 1 over r from the second Christoffel symbol times e sub theta. If you now look up in figure 5.2, you'll see another explanation of this. And again, read around counterclockwise starting on the left. That first one for gamma superscript r subscript r theta says the change in e sub r because that first index is an r caused by a change in theta, because the second subscript is theta, equals zero, that's the magnitude of the Christoffel symbol, and then finishing up by reading the top block, in the E sub R direction. But what about the change in E sub R in the theta direction, caused by a change in theta? Well, that's the other Christoffel symbol shown at the top of this page on the right. There it says gamma superscript theta sub R theta is still the change in E sub R. It's still caused by a change in theta, but this time it has a magnitude of 1 over R, because this time we're considering the component in the E sub theta direction. So these two Christoffel symbols together tell you the change in the E sub R direction and the change in the E sub theta direction, both relative to a change in E sub R induced by a change in theta. 
So that's how you read Christoffel symbols. But how do you actually find their value? That is, how did I determine that 1 equals 0 and another 1 equals 1 over r for a certain coordinate system? In order to understand that, you do have to do a little bit of math. That's what the rest of this section shows you. But the short answer is you can find the values of the Christoffel symbols by taking derivatives involving the metric tensor for that coordinate space. The math for that starts in the middle of page 150, where I start out by taking the Christoffel symbol gamma superscript k sub ij times e sub k and dotting it into the contravariant basis vector e superscript l. I did that on both sides. I simply took equation 522 and dotted both sides into e superscript l. For a dot product, it doesn't matter which order you write them, and therefore I've put the dot e sub l on the right in the left half of the equation and the e sub l dot on the left in the right half of the equation. But if you look at that left half, you've got an e sub k dot e superscript l. That is, we're dotting together a covariant and a contravariant basis vector. And you know that the contravariant basis vectors are what we've been calling the dual or reciprocal basis vectors. And those are defined to be perpendicular to the covariant or original basis vectors along the coordinate axes whenever they have different indices. So the dot product between covariant and contravariant basis vectors must give zero if they have different indices because they're perpendicular. And the dot product between perpendicular vectors is always zero. And if the covariant and contravariant basis vectors have the same index, their dot product gives one. So this dot product gives the Kronecker delta function, as it says at the bottom of page 150, and that means that it's equal to 1 if k equals l, and it equals 0 if k does not equal l. So you can write that dot product as the Kronecker delta. That simply means you can replace the k by an l, because whenever k is not equal to l, that term equals 0. So gamma superscript l sub ij is equal to e superscript l dot the partial derivative, as shown on the bottom of page 150. But it turns out that the partial derivative of e sub i with respect to x superscript j is exactly the same as the partial derivative of e sub j with respect to x superscript i. If you don't see why that's true, it helps to write out e sub i as a partial derivative as described back in chapter 2. If you're having trouble with that and you don't see how it works, take a look in Borisenko and Terapov. In my edition, it's equation 513 on their page 188. It shows that proof in a single line. So the last equation on page 150 says that the previous equation can be split into two equal parts. We're going to call the first part 1 half e superscript l dot the partial of e sub i with respect to x superscript j. And we're going to call the second part 1 half e superscript l dot the partial of e sub j with respect to x superscript i. That seems like we're going backwards. We've turned a single term into two terms, but you'll see the reason for that if you look on page 151. There at the top, you'll see that by adding a term that actually equals 0, it's the term inside the parentheses on the right side of that equation on the top of page 151. 1 half g super k l times the partial of e sub k with respect to x superscript j dot e sub i minus 1 half g superscript k l partial of e sub j with respect to x superscript k dot e sub i. That term is equal to 0, and it's added to the right-hand side of the equation on the bottom of page 150 
twice. The reason for doing all that is shown in the next group of equations in which things begin to simplify by realizing that E superscript L is just the raised index version of E sub K. As it says at the end of that first full paragraph on page 151, E superscript L is equal to G superscript KL E sub K. So the next step is to replace the E superscript L from the equation at the top of page 151 with G superscript KL E sub K. That allows you to pull out a common factor from all the terms, which is one half G superscript KL. When you pull out that common factor, as is done in the middle of the page, and then recognize that you have partial derivatives to which you can apply the product rule, you end up with the expression near the bottom of page 151, which says gamma superscript L subscript ij is equal to one-half g superscript kl times the expression in the square brackets. And if you look at what that expression involves, it's three partial derivatives, and each one is the partial derivatives of two covariant basis vectors dotted together. But the dotting together of covariant basis vectors is exactly what you do to get the components of the covariant metric tensor. So e sub i dot e sub k is equal to g sub i k, and e sub i dot e sub j is equal to g sub i j. When you write those in, you get equation 523, which at last shows you how to find the value of the Christoffel symbol by using the contravariant metric tensor g superscript kl and three partial derivatives of the covariant metric tensor components g sub i k, g sub j k, and g sub i j. So equation 523 at the bottom of page 151 is really the useful equation in terms of finding the Christoffel symbols if you know the metric tensor of your space. At the top of page 152, it reminds you that the Christoffel symbols are going to be useful to allow you to take the derivative of vectors and tensors that accounts for the change in basis vectors. So we need the Christoffel symbols if we want to do that. That's a type of derivative called a covariant derivative that's going to be described in the next section. But before you get to that, to make sure you're solid on Christoffel symbols, take a look at the example that makes up the rest of this section. It has to do with cylindrical coordinates r, phi, and z, for which the differential length element is ds squared, which is dr squared plus r squared d phi squared plus dz squared. You can read the covariant metric tensor right off those. That's written in the middle of the page, and you see that it's a diagonal matrix with one in the upper left, r squared in the middle, and one in the lower right. So you've got to imagine taking derivatives to form the Christoffel symbol is going to give you a lot of zeros, and it does, but some of them do turn out not to be zero. First of all, I said all of the indices equal to 1, so L is equal to 1, I is equal to 1, and J is equal to 1. Remember, you've got a sum over the K index. The K is a dummy index. That's why equation 523 turns out to give you all the terms shown for gamma super 1 subscript 1 1, shown near the bottom of page 152. First I write it in terms of the partial derivatives, then I actually plug in g11 and g12 and g13, and of course those derivatives all turn out to be zero. But then take a look at the case where L equals 1, I equals 2, and J equals 2. That's up at the top of page 153. There you see gamma superscript 1 sub 2, 2 has a different set of partial derivatives for which I've plugged in the values from the metric tensor, and you end up with the expression near the middle of the page that says gamma super 1 sub 2, 2 is equal to minus R. So I wrote out in words what that means. The change in the covariant phi basis vector, E sub phi, 
as you move in the phi direction, because it's gamma sub 2, 2, has a component in the minus r hat direction, because the value comes out minus, that increases directly with distance from the origin, because it's proportional to r. Had you done gamma superscript 2 sub 1, 2, you would have found this value to be 1 over r. And it turns out those are the only non-zero Christoffel symbols for cylindrical coordinates. If you're wondering how that comes about and you can't get it just by following this analysis, there is a problem at the end of the chapter dealing with this, and of course the solution is available to you online. Okay, once you understand Christoffel symbols, you're ready to move on to covariant differentiation, which is the subject of section 5.8 beginning on page 153. The first paragraph of this section just reminds you what's going on here is you're looking for a way of differentiating a vector or higher order tensor in a way that incorporates changes in the magnitude or the direction of the basis vectors. Derivatives that include that are called covariant derivatives, and that's what's described in the rest of this section. Before getting into the actual process of a covariant derivative, there's a little discussion here about the fact that it's very valuable to combine or compare vectors which may exist at different regions of the space. For example, in chapter one, we talked about adding vectors by moving one, keeping the same length in the same direction, moving the tail of a vector to the head of another vector in order to add those two vectors. That's a form of parallel transport where you move the vector while not changing its magnitude or its direction. Covariant differentiation can help you do that because it's going to account for any changes in the magnitudes or directions of the basis vectors. That's straightforward if you're dealing with a flat or Euclidean space. But if you happen to be dealing with a curved space, the situation is more complicated. There's more description of this in chapter 6, but on page 154 there is a paragraph which describes a situation in which you've got, for example, a spherical surface inside a three-dimensional space. Imagine a tangent plane at each point on that surface. That is a flat plane that just barely touches the surface of that sphere at any given point. If you hope to compare the vectors from one of those tangent planes to the vectors of a different tangent plane, that is touching the sphere at a different location, imagine trying to move the vector from one location to another while keeping it pointed in the same direction. So for example, imagine a tangent plane just touching the North Pole and one just touching the equator. If you take a vector in the tangent plane at the North Pole and don't let its magnitude or its direction change and you move it to the equator, it won't lie in the tangent plane at the equator. It'll be sticking out of that tangent plane. So what covariant derivatives help you with in that case is to project that vector onto the tangent plane at the equator. That is the tangent plane that contains the vector that you might want to compare to the vector at the North Pole. And as it says near the middle of page 154, if you take the partial derivative of a tensor, the result is not guaranteed to be a tensor unless you take that partial derivative using covariant differentiation. So exactly how that works is described beginning at the bottom of page 154. There you see a vector A, which has contravariant components A superscript 1, 2, and 3, and covariant basis vectors E sub 1, 2, and 3. The partial derivative of A is written out in the first equation, then the summation convention is invoked, and finally you end up with an equation that shows you the partial of the components with respect to the coordinates times the basis vector, plus the coordinates times the partial of the basis vectors with respect to the coordinates. But in that second term, the partial of E sub I with respect to X super J is exactly the right hand of equation 522 on page 149. So therefore, you can replace that partial derivative with the Christoffel symbol, gamma superscript K sub IJ 
times covariant basis vector E sub k. And that's done in the last equation on the bottom of page 154. Now you've got two terms, one involving E sub i and one involving E sub k, and we can simplify this a little bit if we work on those, which is easily done, because if you look at the term in parentheses on the right of that equation, you'll see that the gamma has a superscript k, and the basis vector has an E subscript k, so the summation convention is invoked, and k is a dummy index. Likewise, i is a dummy index because we have A superscript i times gamma subscript j. So since those are both dummy indices, it means we can switch them, and when you switch them, you get the expression on the top of page 155. Now we've got two terms, both involving the covariant basis vector E sub i, and that means we can group the terms a little differently, and you see that at the second equation at the top of page 155, which says the partial of a with respect to x superscript j is equal to, in parentheses, the partial of a superscript i with respect to x superscript j plus a superscript k times the Christoffel symbol gamma superscript i sub kj, that whole quantity, times the covariant basis vector e sub i. Those two terms within the parentheses define the covariant derivative. So when you want to take the covariant derivative, you take the partial of the components and you add to that products of the components with Christoffel symbols. You can read there that the common notation for this is to use a semicolon. So in equation 554, that expression a superscript i sub semicolon j represents exactly the same thing as the term in parentheses in the expression for partial of a with respect to x superscript j. And you can see here that i and j are free indices. They take on each of the component values, and k is a dummy index because it's summed over in equation 524. If you had done a similar analysis of a vector expanded using covariant components, you would have found the exact same expression except the term involving the Christoffel symbol would have a minus sign in front of it. And that's written out in equation 525. So when you're taking the covariant derivative of a vector or tensor expressed with contravariant components, you add the expression involving the Christoffel symbol. When you're taking the covariant derivative of a vector or tensor expanded using covariant components, you subtract the term involving the Christoffel symbol. It's easier to understand this if you take a look at the example shown on the bottom of page 155, where the covariant derivative of vector A is taken with respect to phi in cylindrical coordinates. So since we're taking the derivative with respect to phi, in equation 524, we make j equal to 2, because phi is the second coordinate in this system. And that leads to two equations, one for a superscript r and one for a superscript phi. Both of them are going to have subscript of semicolon phi, because we're doing the covariant derivative with respect to phi. Looking first at the a superscript r subscript semicolon phi in the middle of page 155, there I've written out the terms. Notice that the dummy index k takes on values r, phi, and z. Those derivatives are pretty straightforward. I've taken those in the next line, and you see that in addition to the partial derivative of a super r with respect to phi, you also get a term involving the component a superscript phi times minus r. That's what we found that Christoffel symbol to be. So what is that telling you? It's telling you that if you're looking for the change in the r component of a vector a caused by a change in phi, you're going to have to consider two terms. First is the change in a superscript r with respect to phi. That's that partial derivative. And also, you've got to consider the contribution that comes from the a superscript phi component, which is multiplied by minus r. That's described in a little different words in that paragraph toward the bottom of page 155. 
A similar analysis is done then on the A superscript phi component. Again, I've written out the three terms involving the Christoffel symbols, plugged in the values for those Christoffel symbols, two of which are zero, and you get the second term of the right side of the equation at the bottom of page 155, which says you get the partial of A superscript phi with respect to phi plus 1 over R times A superscript R, and those are in front of the covariant phi basis vector. So I've written out the entire thing, both the E sub R component and the E sub phi component on the bottom of page 155. As you can imagine, you can also do this for higher order tensors, as long as you remember, for every contravariant component, you have to add a term involving a Christoffel symbol, and for every covariant component, you need to subtract a term involving a Christoffel symbol. This is shown on the top of page 156 for a double contravariant tensor A, a double covariant tensor B, and a mixed contravariant covariant tensor C. In each case, the terms involving Christoffel symbols are added for the contravariant indices and subtracted for the covariant indices. The last section of this chapter, section 5.9 on page 156, is just intended to give you a little introduction to the different terminology that you may run into in so-called modern approaches to the questions of vectors and tensors. Authors of the so-called traditional textbooks tend to continue using contravariant and covariant terminology, but the modern approach uses different terminology. Instead of reading about contravariant and covariant components, you'll read about vectors and covectors and one forms. So why haven't I written the entire book using that terminology? It's been my experience that enough of the traditional terminology is still around and still in use in a lot of textbooks that you should understand that. And this section, I hope, will help you understand how to translate that into the expressions you'll see in the books written using the modern approach. I really think these differences in terminology come from different perspectives. The core concepts at the heart of all this remain the same in both cases. So as it says in the second paragraph of this section, most authors using the terminology of contravariance and covariance will talk about these components as different representations of the same object. But in the so-called modern approach, objects tend to be classified either as vectors, which transform as contravariant quantities, or as things called one-forms, or sometimes covectors, which transform as covariant quantities. As I mentioned in a previous chapter, if a quantity has a dimension of length in the numerator, meters per second for velocity, or just meters for distance, or meters per second squared for acceleration, those fit very naturally into the vector category. Whereas if the dimension of length appears in the denominator, something per meter, such as a gradient, those tend to fit naturally into the one-form category. In the traditional terminology, what we'd say is that the contravariant components are simpler for those with the dimensions of length in the numerator, and the covariant components are simpler for those with dimensions of length in the denominator. But in the modern approach, meters in the numerator will signify vectors, and meters in the denominator will signify one-forms or covectors. It's also interesting to see how authors using the modern terminology tend to represent vectors in one forms, and I've given an example of that in figure 5.3 on the top of page 157. You already know about vectors. They're shown as directed line segments with an arrowhead showing you the direction of the vector, and the length of the line is an indication of the magnitude of the vector. But for one forms, the best graphical representation tends to be segments of a plane, such as those parallel lines shown in figure 5.3 on page 157. 
And what's interesting is that if the magnitude of the one form is large, the planes are closer together. So there you see a one form with a small magnitude with the planes rather widely spaced and a one form with large magnitude with the lines more tightly spaced. It's easy to understand this again if you think of these as contours where remember now we're considering something like volts per meter or elevation change per meter if you're making a contour map. And the tighter the contours, the larger the gradient. So that's why large one forms have close spaced lines and small one forms have wider spaced lines. If you track the earlier section about dotting contravariant and covariant quantities and finding the scalar value of that process without involving the metric tensor, there's a similar way to interpret that process using vectors and one forms. And that is, you can imagine allowing the vector to penetrate through the one form and the number of surfaces that that vector would penetrate gives you the dot product between those two objects. So if the vector and the one form point in the same direction, that means that the directed line segment is perpendicular to those surfaces, because remember, the surfaces are perpendicular to the direction of the one form, and that gives you the maximum value. If the vector is perpendicular to the surfaces of the one form, it penetrates as many as it possibly can. On the other hand, if the vector is along the surfaces of the one form, then it's perpendicular to the one form, and the dot product gives you zero, as it should, because the vector doesn't penetrate any surfaces. The last paragraph of this section just points out that you'll also notice in the modern approach, authors often refer to vectors and one forms as operators, sometimes called rules, for combining objects. So, for example, you'll find statements about vectors taking one forms and producing scalars. Sometimes they say one forms taking vectors and producing scalars. And you can apply that to higher order tensors by saying a higher order tensor takes multiple vectors or perhaps multiple one forms and produces a scalar result. As with all the other chapters, there's a set of problems here which will allow you to exercise your understanding of the concepts presented in this chapter. I strongly encourage you to work through those problems. Try to work them on your own at first. If you need help, you'll find hints as well as the full solution available to you online.